Hello, this is Paul Bainsfair and this is the IPA podcast. Today I'm talking to Richard Shotton. Richard is the Deputy Head of Evidence at Manning Gottlieb OMV and he has written a book. Uh, the book you may already have heard of because it's getting quite a lot of publicity is The Choice Factory, all about behavioural economics with lots of good examples in it. So let's hear what Richard has to say about the writing of the book and what he thinks it can help us with. Okay, so here I am with Richard um, to talk about his great new book, um, which by the way, I have noticed uh, a few people reading on public transport, (laughs) so you're obviously selling copies, that's brilliant. Um, But I thought a great place to start would be the David Ogilvy quote, people don't think what they feel, don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. Do you think that's a, a, a good summing up of why behavioural economics is such an important topic for people in our world? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great place to start. Um, one of the appeals of behavioural science is that there is no grand theory to it. It's a, it's a range of lots of different biases, and then you can pick the one that applies best to your problem. So I think that is a real strength. But if there is one theme that runs through it, I think it, it's that, that when consumers explain why they've done the thing they have, they can come up very quickly with interesting explanations, but they often don't bear much of a relationship to the truth. And if you take those at face value, it can lead you, it can lead you um, to, to the wrong approach, because people will regularly tell you they buy products for very rational reasons, whether it's price or um, uh, the, the, the product itself, rather than inconsequential. So what pro- so what prompted you to write this book in the first place? What, what, was, the, what was the sort of burning sort of thing you wanted to get out there that, that, that drove you to do all this work? Because it's not an easy task taking on writing a book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few areas. I, I was very keen that when we talked about behavioural science in advertising, we didn't just talk about one or two biases. I think there's far too much discussion of a handful of very popular biases, things like loss aversion or, or, or social proof. Um, I was very keen to dispel a myth that oh, this stuff, um, this behavioural science thing, it applied 100 years ago, but now we've had the internet, it's no longer relevant. So a lot of the book is taking existing experiments done as far back as the 1890s, rerunning them and showing they apply in a commercial setting and they apply today. And then finally, I think the, the other area of the book that um, was very interesting was, well, now you know about these biases, what should you do differently? What are the practical implications that whether you're working uh, as a creative a ad planner, a media buyer, or a, um, a marketer setting prices, that you, you, you can do things differently now. I want to come back to that. Hmm. Um, but uh, I was pleased to hear you say that you, you think this is um, as relevant today as it's ever been. Absolutely. Um, particularly because, uh, I mean, you and I were talking before we started recording about The Anatomy of Humbug, hmm. Paul Feldberg's book. And uh, Ernst Dichter, who, who was one of the yeah. first guys who came up with motivational research, which yeah. I think is not unadjacent to what we're talking about. Um, and I think people don't, people don't really change. I mean, human, human nature doesn't really change. I mean, technology changes what we can do. Yes. But how we are and what we think and what, mm. you know, what motivates us, that doesn't really change. No, 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 not at all. Uh, there's a wonderful Burnback quote of, it's fashionable to talk about the changing man, but as a communicator, we should be talking about the, we should focus on the unchanging man. And I think there's a lot of truth there that many of these behavioural biases are evolutionary based. 
Um, they worked for us for our hundreds of thousand years history when we were on the African savannas, and in the blink of an eyelid that we've been in far more commercial urbanised society, that hasn't changed our underlying behaviour. So areas like scarcity or social proof, following what other people do, they are hardwired into us as humans. Mm. So, having done the book, mm. and, and it's, I mean, I absolutely recommend it, by the way, to anybody who has yet to get hold of a copy, it's crammed with real examples of this stuff at work. What, which ones were the ones that um, pleased you the most that you uncovered or discovered uh, in, in putting the book together? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the bit I've in, I enjoyed most is working with researchers to do kind of very quick, fast and frugal experiments. Uh, and one of my favourites, because it was a little bit quirky, was we were working on a, a, a new look brief when they were launching their menswear range. And the initial approach was, um, I'm just going to tell people we have menswear clothes, it's going to be a small announcement. And our suspicion was that there was a bigger job to be done, that people had, a, a men especially had a reticence about shopping at a female shop. So all I did was take a dozen volunteers, maybe a half dozen volunteers, take two photos of them, one holding a new look bag, um, and one holds a plastic bag with new look logo on it, and then another with the top man logo on it. And then we put those photos up onto dating sites, a dating site called Hot or Not. And the special thing about Hot or Not at the time was if you put your photo up, people would rate how good looking you were out of 10. So after two weeks, we pulled all the, the numbers, the scores that our volunteers got in terms of their looks, and we found that they were judged to be 25% less sexy when they had the, <laughs> top, uh, the new look bag than when they had the uh, top man bag. And so I like this as an example because one, it's not treating research as something that is formulaic and you have to follow a set process. It hardly cost anything. I think we spent four quid to get a plastic bag from Top Man. Let's go and buy a white t-shirt. And then thirdly, it's really practical. So what, what, and what, did, oh. what did they do with that information? Well, so, so the information, so we went and argued to them that, look, this isn't just a small announcement campaign, a little bit of fractional press. You need, to ch- you need to spend far more and you need to change the... Um, uh, the, the opinion of your brand so that it's seen as a unisex brand or that men stop becoming so hung up on shopping at somewhere which also has a lot of women's clothes. And also, um, it's, it's the story about the red and the blue paint. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember it. Um, now, that's a slightly different thing, isn't it? Where a colour means something to people. Yes. Um, do you want to tell so me the, more the, about the, that? Yeah, the underlying idea is this thing of, um, like obviously it's a placebo effect, but the we experience what we expect to experience. Um, and what's interesting about the placebo effect is that it's not this um, homogenous, it's either on or it's either off. It's a phenomenally varied uh, uh, approach. So there's a guy called Anton de Crane, did a meta-analysis, 12 different studies, and looked at what increased or decreased the effectiveness of the placebo. And he found that for analgesics, for painkillers, um, regularly, a red painkiller would have a better uh, pain relief effect than a blue one because of the cultural connotations of red. It's seen as potent and powerful, whereas blue is seen as calming. So you see the exact opposite effect for uh, sedatives. Blue is more, more effective. Now, I think why this is really interesting is, one, we're sometimes uh, um, guilty of learning a little bit about a subject. So we all know about the placebo effect, but then not doing the hard work of finding out all the little variant and nuances that we can apply. But I think it's re- secondly it's really interesting because, and this was a very small scale test because I didn't have much money, um, I went around lots of pharmacists buying painkillers 
And I think of the 14 I tried to buy, only, I think only one or two had, a, were, were, were coloured red. So a well-known study, yeah. which is not just a single study, it's a meta-analysis, I think, of 12 studies, has shown red painkillers more powerful, yet this finding's being ignored by the pharmaceutical industry. Why not colour your pills red? There's no side effects, the placebo effects. Why not take advantage of it? That is, that is mm. fascinating. And, and in a way, I suppose, leads us on to the question, why isn't mm. BE, if I can call it behavioural economics, yeah. BE for the rest of the interview, yeah. it's just easier. Um, why isn't it more widely embraced by manufacturers, marketeers, and advertising people? What, what do you think has got in the way of that? I th- I, well, going back to your original quote, too much research... Um, asks people why they did the thing that they did. Why do they behave in a certain way? Um, and if you ask people, like the, take the painkiller example, did the red colour have any effect? Everyone will tell you no. So too many people are still relying on claim data. Now I think claim data can be useful and interesting, but it's got to be um, taken with a large degree of, of pinch of salt. So that's one issue. The second issue I think is behavioural science is tarnished unfairly because it's seen as old and we have this strange belief in marketing, this strange fascination with whatever's new because behavioural science stretches back to 1890 people think, oh, we've all, as you said, we've all changed since then the internet's come along, mm. people don't fall for this stuff any longer um, and again, go back, that's why I was so keen to run these experiments to show that's just not the case Yes, I, I um, can't remember who said it but uh, I thought it was very funny that today marketing people are like dogs barking at every passing car. You know, yeah. Whatever's the latest thing yeah, that yeah. goes by, you think, we've got to have yeah. some of that, we yeah. should be doing that. And Sounds they like forget, a Warwick Sutherland, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. They forget all of the, the basics yes. that, that it's taken years to learn. Um, so you talked about some of the things that you, you did yourself to, to prove some of yeah. these points, which obviously was very uh, rewarding, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some of the, uh, the, mm. the big brands that have used BE. And, you know, maybe we as observers, weren't aware they were doing that. I mean, yeah. I think you talk about, I want to talk about Volkswagen first. I mean, the Pratt-Ford effect, you want, tell me what that oh. is. So it's, it's, it's a bias, it's the idea that if we admit or exhibit a weakness, we become more appealing. It was first discovered by a Harvard psychologist called Elliot Aronson, and he did this very ingenious test where he paid one of his colleagues to go and answer quiz questions. The colleague gets 92% of those questions right. And the reason he gets so many is Aronson had given him the answers. So this guy looks very, very impressive, looks very clever. But then as the quiz finishes and he wins it, he stands up and knocks over a cup of, cup of coffee down himself. So that's what the Americans call a pratfall or a small blunder. Uh, Aronson then takes that recording and then plays it out to students, either as just the quiz questions or the quiz questions and the pratfall. And he finds that the person is significantly more appealing if they hear the mistake as well as the, the competent quiz question answering. So that, that, that's the academic background. Uh, it's then been proven in the real world a few times. And what you see is quite... Sorry, you see some of the best advertisers in the world, people like Volkswagen, people like Listerine, people like Avis, harnessing this bias. Yeah. So VW went out and said a few things. They said, um, ugly is only skin deep. You know, we look quirky. They said that they were America's slowest fastback. It's a wonderful Bob Levinson line. Uh, you can tell it's a VW because it only goes 72 miles an hour, even though the speedometer shows a wildly optimistic top speed of 90 miles an hour. Um, so they said they were slow and ugly, 
But the brilliant thing they did was then match that weakness with a strength. They said, ah, well, we don't care about aesthetic fripperies because we care about engineering excellence. We don't care about speed because we care about uh, uh, the fuel economy. And it was believed because by admitting a weakness, they'd shown, tangibly shown that they were honest. So people could believe in that little yeah, bit more. I mean, that obviously is probably one of the most famous campaigns, mm. advertising campaigns of all time. As indeed, although perhaps some of our younger listeners might yeah. remember, is the Avis number two, We yeah. Try Harder, yes. which is, again, setting yourself up as not being the big guys in the, in, in, yeah. in the market. And, and then follow, it follows, doesn't it? Well, we've got we to work harder. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, what about other examples of brands we might know that have used this technique? So I think, um, there's, I think the other one, it's a very interesting example, is around Nespresso. Um, their ideas around price relativity. So the, the, the idea at the heart of Nespresso is that consumers don't have a, a firm conception of what good value is. No one walks around thinking, I'm going to pay £1 per unit happiness for a coffee, but also £1 per unit for happiness for, for a, a trainer. That is a very complicated question. How would you calculate that? Instead, they switch a complicated question for a very simple question, which is something is good value if it's cheaper than something else that's comparable. So what Nespresso did when they launched was rather than launching half kilo bags of coffee, like a Dow Egberts or a Taylor's of Harrogate, they launched in little cup-sized servings which come in a little pod. Now, the brilliant thing of that is if Nespresso, on their current per gram price, were in half kilo bags, it would cost about 40 quid. Now, there is no one in their right mind who would go to Tesco's, push aside a bag of Dow Egberts for five, for five and select a 40 gram pound bag of uh, Nespresso. But because it's served in a, a pod, and because that pod gives you one cup, the comparison set completely changes and people think, well, I normally buy coffee. Coffee, coffee by the cup in, uh, in Cafe Nero, and that cost me £2.70. So if an espresso pod only costs 47 pence, this is an amazing bargain. Yeah. But £40 for a you know, half kilo bag and 47 pence for a pod, they're exactly no, the same per gram price. So, but, you, but you've managed I suppose, to... I mean, in a sense, they, there was something else at work, wasn't there, which, which was that... They were they were giving a coffee making system. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Not not just the coffee. So, so, so absolutely, it's, 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 because that's because because it's a real world example. It's never going to be a clean experiment that held up every other variable right. But imagine in a in an alternate universe that you still have the Nespresso machine, but you had to go down to Tesco's to buy the coffee that you then took to the Nespresso and you put in the machine. Mm-hmm. And imagine it was a very simple thing; you just poured it in automatically. I still don't think anyone would have paid forty pounds no, back, I'm, whatever the savings in efficiency, because because it would have felt exorbitantly expensive. No, I think you're, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and there are, I mean, I've been involved in examples in the past. With I used to work years ago on um, on McVitie's, and they had lots of different what we used to call caramelites, like penguin biscuits, hmm. um, and they had a particular problem. They had a sort of marshmallow, yes, individually wrapped, yeah, yeah. And the it, coconut flakes now. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And they, it wasn't. It was never a good, a good seller. And it was a similar thing. They, it, but it was a much more simple solution. Mm. Um, it it was it was positioned alongside things like penguin. Yeah. In the counter fixture. Yes. And it was very. It was seen to be very ex- expensive. Um, 
So they had the brilliant idea of, of getting the company, uh, the, the retailers rather, to put it near the pack cakes where the price comparison was much better, yeah. sales to gold. Yeah. So it's exactly the same, Absolutely. same example. That, that, that's I think the danger sometimes if, we, if you just see the Nespresso example, just see the Mallows example, it feels like it is something unique. But these ideas about changing um, the perceived value of a product can be applied on, on a much smaller scale. So if there's any charities out there, a simple tactic is, we've done this in, it, it is survey work, but hopefully enough to persuade people to, um, to at least test it. Rather than going out and asking for a, a fiver a month, why not go out and ask for, um, what would that be, a pound a week? So we've done tests where we've shown people the same product, and we, we did it for cars, and we said, um, uh, and I'll change the math slightly so it's a bit simpler, but you can get a Mazda for £1,200 a year, or you can get it for £100 a month, or what would it be, £3.50 a week? Okay, well, yeah, no, £3.50 a day. A day. Yeah, yeah, £23 a week. So essentially, it all, it all would ladder up to exactly the same annual price. Now, when we gave people that questionnaire, they only saw one price. They either saw the annual price, or the monthly, or the weekly, or the daily. And what we found was that people saw the Mazda as much better value when they saw it as a daily price. Daily price was, was better value than the weekly, weekly was better than the monthly, monthly was better than the um, annual. So by changing the unit of time, you can make the same price seem better or worse value. It's a strange thing of almost people overweight the price and underweight the time. So they think six times four isn't the same as four yeah, times yeah. six. Yeah, no, mm. it's, it's fascinating. Mm. Well, it's back to what we said. Yeah. People don't do what they say. Yes, they yes. think what they feel. Um, let's talk a little bit about this, this category of social proof that mm. some heading under yeah. the yeah. that, Although you said it's a well-established one, I don't think everybody would be oh. familiar with it. But this is, a, this is an area of, I think, um, real significance for all sorts of reasons, and I'll come on to that. But um, give us a, talk to me about Apple's headphones or Magna's serving technique. So social proof is a fascinating idea. It's the idea that when we choose a product, we don't just look at our own internal motivations. We consciously or consciously look out and see what other people are doing. So we are very influenced by the perceived popularity of a good. Now, you've got brands applying this in a very basic manner. Tunnocks, the strange chocolate bar, go out and say, we sell, I think, five million a week that is a very simple application of social proof. Uh, and you see that again and again on websites, how popular they are. You then see a slightly more sophisticated example where drawing on work by Robert Cialdini, rather than going out and saying how popular you are, you say how popular you are amongst a relevant group. So the HMRC found that when they said nine out of people take a tax on time, that improves tax repayment rates. When they say eight, uh, sorry, nine out of 10 people pay their tax on time in Basingstoke, the people who heard that in Basingstoke were even more likely to pay their tax on time. So that's the kind of subtle improvement. You've then got, I think, the uh, input of a more creative mind coming into it, where you don't even need to be the most popular brand to appear phenomenally popular. So the Apple example was back in 2004, Apple uh, launched their iPod, lots of other competitors out there, lots of other MP3 players, and at the time, Every other competitor had black earphones. So with their MP3 player tucked in their pocket, you as a viewer couldn't see who was the market leader. Apple launch, make a very big thing in their posters of having white headphones. They're the only player who has white headphones. 
their smallish market share suddenly looks dominant because they were uh, they were very distinctive and stood out. So they felt like they were the market leader far beyond um, actually being. I was, I was, I've got a little um, insight on, Ooh, on on that. Yeah. Uh, which which is um, for advertising, you know, kind of anoraks. Yeah. Because uh, I was working at TBWA, who had the TBWA Chite Day, the LA office. Yeah. Had the account, and the the ads you're talking about, which were those um, silhouette ads. Yeah. Very sort of um, fused with strong colours mm. and just with the white headphones, you know, yeah. girls dancing or guys or whatever it was, standing out. When uh, the presentation happened to, to Steve Jobs, because he got very involved in the ads, yeah. um, Jay Chire, um, not, no, it wasn't Jay, it was Lee Clamp, the credit director, had, had taken an, a number of ideas to sell the iPod. Yeah. And that campaign hadn't been done by the credit department. It had been done by a designer that the credit department used to finish up. Oh, wow. It just done it yeah. off, off his yeah. or her own back. I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl. And they took it because they saw it and they something connected mm. in their head that they couldn't really explain. This was before everyone realised that the white headphones were yeah. going to have the effect you've discussed. Yes. You know, you've, you've explained so they took it to the um, to the meeting at, at Apple's headquarters, and they put because Steve, you couldn't sell anything to Steve. Yeah, you know he would just decide. Yeah. So they put the three or four campaigns down, and then they put this slightly wacky campaign yeah. because it was seen at the time down the end. Because it was and the other thing to say is very much unlike any other Apple advertising they've gone. Mm. And he just walked up and down, and he said, "Where's this come?" He, he said, what, "What's this?" Yeah, yeah. And they explained that it had been done yeah. by a designer. Mm. We've got to do that, haven't we? It, 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 yeah. it, so it was, a, it was a bit of a fluke. Yes. Is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Uh, but it was born out of, I think, the very thing you're talking yeah. about. People just, there's something about these white headphones. I mean, no one had written a brief about the white yeah. headphones. It just happened to be yeah. uh, one of those things. I, just, I, mean, I think that's interesting in that I went and interviewed John Hegarty uh, and asked, well, a lot of the talked a lot about the campaigns he'd done and others were doing at the time, and said, you know, how much psychology did these draw on? And whilst he agreed they were applying a lot of the biases, it wasn't through a necessarily a bookish understanding of psychology. It was from a deep understanding of how people are. And I think you go back to these examples from Birnbach or um, Hegarty or, or, or Dave Trott, and they are, they've drawn it from observation and experience and learned over time what's worked and then, and then yeah. applied it. Now... Sometimes people criticise behavioural science, saying, well, is this a post-rationalisation for stuff we're doing anyway? Well, if it is a, uh, a collection of the wisdom of you know, great people like Hegarty or Trot or, or Birnbach, and it makes it easier for lesser mortals like us to apply that type of thinking, then that, to me, is a, is a strength, not something to, to, to denigrate. Definitely. Mm. I mean, I, I, think, I think good creative people have it, it in yeah. them. They, they don't, as you say, they don't have to learn it. Yeah. I mean, funny, one of Dave's... I just remember one of Dave Trotts, who I also worked with, yeah. uh, great ideas, was when, back in the early 80s, there were lots, the government set up lots of development areas around the country where you've got grants yeah. to develop, you know, to put your business into, you know, wherever it might be, in the Midlands or the Northeast or whatever. And, of course, Docklands in London yeah. was, before Docklands was built, was one of those early areas. Yeah. And Dave had a campaign, because they were competing. These areas would be competing yeah. for investment. And his campaign was, why move to the middle of nowhere when you can move to the middle of London? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's, a, it's just a brilliant way of positioning yes. that as a very special 
development areas, yeah. and it was it was very successful. Um, but again, it's his instinct of yes. understanding how people think. Yeah, well, um, I think, I think if you you know you see a lot of small businesses applying some of these insights, and I think that's because they are monitoring what works on a they, they've got a, they've got a very quick feedback loop. If you're a waiter, you will quickly learn what gets you the, the best tips because you're doing it 100 times a day and you your success is immediate to you, so you quickly learn. Mm. Um, all I think behavioural science does is act as a shortcut for the rest of us, that we don't have to do the thousands of hours of um, uh, watching people. We can get quickly to, to what actually motivates them. So um, go back to Pratt Falls. Yes, yes. I wanted to talk about Donald Trump. Okay, uh, yeah. Because I had a very interesting conversation with somebody here, mm. where who, um, Sylvia, who works in our, um, in our sort of consulate, was saying, oh, I, I, I love Richard's book, but I was, I was thinking about this Prattful thing and Trump, and, uh, you know, no one loves him, she was saying. Mm. Uh, but then I said, well, of course he got elected. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, get... I, and I, I was going to ask you whether you thought part of his appeal was that sort of slightly um, awkward... I'm just telling it how it is thing. And, and again, people were responding to him as someone who wasn't a politician. Yeah, I think that could have been... I think that's fascinating. I think that's fascinating because we often only want to learn from people that are very appealing. You know, we want to learn from anti-cigarette ads. We find it slightly distasteful to learn from ads that promoted smoking. Uh, you know, but there's some amazing insights you can draw. I'm not saying you should go out and do something ethical. I'm saying that you can learn from unethical people and the cyclical biases they've, 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 they've applied. Uh, there's some amazing stuff around how cigarettes, for example, were positioned by Edward Bernays in the 1920s. But sorry, back, back, so what I mean is I think it's fascinating to try and learn from Trump, even if you dislike him. Uh, and, but, but I think you're right. The, you know, that he positioned himself very powerfully about what he, he wasn't. He wasn't part of the... Washington elite who were just passing, yeah, yeah. passing down um, the, the, the presidency from, son, from father to son or from husband to wife. And what I think, how he did that so well was, you know, openly reveling gaffes or um, annoying people, uh, all these rough edges that normally in a career politician they'd have been smoothed off. So I think that was his, yeah, it was a strong it sort of rein- mm. I mean, mm. I'm not a fan of his, no. but it sort of reinforced the idea that he was someone who was going to yeah. just roll his sleeves up and yeah. not get deflected by the usual yes. political you know, norms. Yes. He was just going to do what he said. Which is an amazing achievement from the, who, um, a man who was the son of a multi-multi-millionaire. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, Farage and Johnson as well, they've kind of positioned themselves maybe through this, not to say just bumbling, because I think that's specific to Johnson, but this dif- distinctiveness from other politicians mm. by being prepared to court outrage. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's a whole yeah, yes, 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 yes. But I think that it is possible to observe how over time, and I think you know Blair and and um, and his his team um, did show how it was possible to avoid uh, being extreme in almost every mm. way and appeal to the middle ground. Yeah. And then you know Cameron became sort of heir to Blair, and was yeah. Well, you had a long period here, and I think it's the same in America of the politicians all seemingly saying the same mm. things, and then suddenly. There's an opportunity for people, I mean, obviously we've had an interesting thing with Corbyn over here, 
saying yeah. other things that are completely separate to the mainstream. Yes. And people going, oh, that's yeah. a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. It's not, I don't think it's a right or left wing thing. I think mean, you've got, I think, Corbyn, Farage, Johnson, Macron, uh, and Trump all mm. have managed to tap into that dissatisfaction by saying what they're not rather than yeah. necessarily what they are. And it's probably, the reason I think it's related mm. to, to what we're talking about is it is why so-called populism is, is back in, in politics because, because some of these different politicians are appealing to base human nature mm. rather than just doing what they think politicians should do. Yes. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah they capitalise. If, if, you, if you are dissatisfied with things that they are, and there's many reasons to be dissatisfied, therefore the other suddenly seems appealing. So um, I had another question, mm. which uh, I, I was wondering, a lot, in a lot of the cases that you give, I, I was reading the book and thinking, oh, that, that's really interesting. And then on one or two occasions, I was thinking, oh, and I'll give you an example. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I did fall for that. And I'm thinking, let's say, oh. of the um, no pound sign on a on menu, yeah. which I think is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for those that have yet to read the book, this is the idea that uh, restaurants have, have learned, mostly high-end restaurants do it, I think. If they don't put the pound sign, people spend yes. a bit more. Yeah, study by Sybil Yang. Yeah. Now, the reason I said I, yeah. I think I was kind of, uh, I, had a, I, was, I was prepared for that is whenever I see it, and yeah. this is not since I've read your book, <laughs> whenever I see it, I always think this is... Expensive. Yeah, I wondered, and it was a bigger question, which is: Do we develop? Do we develop sort of um, defences for some of these techniques? Do you think? Okay, uh, yeah, through experience, yeah. or, or well, because when you when you first saying that, I was thinking where you're going to go was well, do these biases work on everyone? And what's been most interesting about the, the nudge unit works, the behavioural insight team, it started, I think, to become a bit more sophisticated and not just say. Uh, a nudge works all the time, but it works differently amongst different groups. So with the pound sign example, Cesarogo and uh, Sybil Yang found that people were 8% less price sensitive when they took off the pound signs. Now that doesn't mean that everyone became 8% less sensitive. It could be you know, a third of people. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not trying to do the maths. But most people became less price sensitive and there were some that had the opposite reaction. So what the behavioural insight team have done is to try and, rather than just say, oh, there's variability, deal with it, predict who will be influenced by what, what nudge. And their most interesting work is around, going back to social proof, actually, they showed that with that famous campaign, uh, nine out of ten people take their tax on time, that worked against most people. I think had about a 15% increase in repayment rates. But they found that those who owed loads of tax, like the top 5% and the top 1%, when they heard that social proof message, it actually had a negative effect. It made them slower in paying. It was actually promoted the problem they wanted. So although it was doing great on a overall level, there were segments within the group who... Um, so there was an invitation to not pay on time. Yeah. Oh, I mean, right, everybody does that. Well, yeah. yeah. Also, they, were saying, they were saying most people do. But they, the, the argument I think David Halpern makes is, if you are that rich that you can owe this huge amount of money you probably don't see yourself as similar to others. Mm. So they tested other messages to try and get them to pay on time, and the one that was most effective was, uh, let's say the person owed £10,000, you know, your £10,000 could pay for a kidney transplant or a mm. special baby unit uh, thing. And the, making their lack of payment tangible and that yeah. what was happening to society because of it, that was much more effective. So I think there's an element of... Um, 
needing to learn which nudge works in the right situation towards the right person. Yeah, and of course, mm. the, your example, um, you could say, is not unadjacent to uh, the, the highly controversial poster that ran during the Brexit campaign. So oh, yes. The money we say yes. we can put into the national, 350 oh. million or whatever it was, yeah. a, a week or something, yeah, bizarre, yeah, yeah, yeah. we can put into the National Health Service, which, I mean, it seems to have captured the imagination of people Pro and against. Yes, such a huge claim, oh, but it, that, it's tangibleized. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that I went and saw Dominic. Uh, it's Dominic Cummings, I think, wasn't it? I went and saw him speak, and I mean, this is certainly his argument. He said we knew that figure, which by some technical definitions may be correct, and I think that money, you know, that was the gross figure. It's a bit misleading. But it, was the, it was the gross figure, wasn't it, that left? He said we knew that the opposition, the Remainers, could not ignore what they saw as a factual error. And therefore, they kept on attacking it. And he said, what therefore happened was, we said, a very, very large amount of money leaves Britain to the EU. And then what Remain spent their airtime saying is, a very large amount of money leaves yeah. Britain to the EU. He said, we, we, we moved the conversation onto the ground that we were strongest on. Mm-hmm. And it, whether you were pro or against, that's a phenomenal piece of campaign. It's a classic um, sort of mistake that happens in political campaigning, because I... I Worked at Sarge's uh, when they were doing mm. Conservative. Mm. The famous Labour isn't working. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which was the first poster that really captured the mm. the imagination of everybody. Yeah. The, the media were obsessed with it. The opposition, uh, the, sorry, the government at the time, which was Labour government, yeah. were obsessed with the fact that, that that this poster wasn't entirely fair because they used actors. Yeah, and it yeah, yeah. And it just got it just got yeah. endless coverage. And as you were saying, exactly the same thing. It was just. That poster just kept on mm. repeating, yeah. repeated and repeated. And of course, it was free airtime or yes. free, free, free opportunities to see. Yeah. Um, all driven by the, the people you were trying to, um, to attack. Yes. And I think an understanding there of, actually, to most of us, there is, what's the difference between 500 million and 100 million? They're just both very, very large numbers. Yeah. Um, so the nuances that were fixating the insiders and the professionals were irrelevant to the, the public and the voters. Well, look, we've um, we've talked half an hour. I could go on for <laughs> yeah. longer. Um, uh, what do you what do you hope people take out of this book? Um, it it is a great read. Um, I think it's very got lots of practical uh, ideas in it. But what what would be your yeah. what, what would success look like from your apart from selling loads? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I think two things. I think a greater interest in uh, social psychology and behavioural science. I still think it's utterly bizarre that a business that is about changing behaviour isn't constantly talking about the science of behaviour change. So that's one area, just make it more prominent and more talked about in all its breadth. But then the second bit is, what I don't necessarily want people to do is take my word on faith alone. I've explained all the experiments I've run, I've explained the uh, methodology, how people can go out and do them. If you even think there might be a chance of some of these biases applying to your brand or your category, go out and test them. Now you can test them on your website and two weeks later you'll know if they're, they're true or not. Now they might not work every single time in every single case, but they'll work in the vast majority. And I think that's a much better odds than you'll get from most other approaches. And you don't go. think there's any, um, and I say this because it did happen when motivational research took yeah. off in the 50s in America, mm. that you, you got the, sort of the, the, the voice of the antis, the people out there who are very suspicious of advertising, mm. saying, ooh, you know, they're using, like, voodoo. They're using techniques to manipulate. I mean, of course, yeah. that led to the Hidden Persuaders. Yes. A very famous book by Vance Packard. 
full of, by the way, uh, yeah, 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 yes, a lot yes, of fake yes, stuff, yes, yes. as you know. Um, yeah, um, the subliminal test and the cinema were made up. Yeah. But it nevertheless did yeah, create yeah, a, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of issues. But you think we're past that, and you don't think that people are going to worry about us using these techniques? I, th- I, think, that, I think that's a very good question. I think um, that there's a couple of things there. That the, I think getting get, get into the main thing, you've got to split out. Are you objecting to advertising, i.e. a brand having the right to... Um, persuade people to buy it. That's one thing. And I think we should, I'm certainly saying we shouldn't be and robustly defend that. And the second thing is, are we disagreeing with behavioural science as a technique to um, persuade people? Now, if it's the latter, you know, I can't see the logic behind it because no persuasion has ever just been based on logic alone. So you go back to Aristotle, and he realised to be persuasive, you couldn't just rely on logos, logic, you had to have ethos and pathos, like appeals to authority and emotion. And then he had hundreds of tactics for generating that emotion. I, I think we just this is a, a kind of scientific collection of ways to be more persuasive. And if we are taking our clients' money, we have an obligation to spend it in a persuasive as possible way. As long as, of course, like in any other advert or any other use you're legal, honest, decent and true. It doesn't give you a get-out card. I agree with that. Mm. And I think also uh, the proof of the pudding in the end is, is, is in the um, eating, isn't it? And if you do lead someone to a purchase that they yes. don't yes. enjoy or regret, yes. they're not going to make another yeah. purchase. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. We don't have to worry too yeah. much about it. Oh, and then another one, but we were saying about you know this voodoo, I probably, we should be careful of saying you know, they're nudges, not shoves, that they increase the probability of someone behaving the way you want, but... You're not putting a spell on No, no, exactly. And, and the danger is sometimes we talk about the best examples like De Beers on Espresso and it feels like they're all billion pound um, opportunities when a lot more of it is moving maybe a conversion rate from 10% to 11%. Very important to the business but hardly spellbinding for the uh, um, listener. Well, mm. There we have it. Yes. A great, a great book. Uh, I warmly recommend uh, everyone to get a copy of it. Uh, it it's available on all good uh, yeah, Amazon selling um, foils, Watson's, yeah, and shops. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's uh, The Choice Factory by Richard Shelton. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat with Richard. Um, I must say that the book um, has an additional benefit, at least to my mind, and that is that it's written in a very readable, um, with lots of bite-sized sort of sections kind of way and uh, it's very easy to dip in and out of so um, I've plugged it enough but um, do go out and get a copy I think you'll find it really enjoyable anyway that's all for now this has been Paul Bates Fair and this has been the IPA podcast <laughs>